Welcome to the Kenosha City Church Podcast. Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 2 and answer the question, are the gifts of the Spirit still for today? Enjoy the message. The church that we see in, in the Word of God is a place where we meet together and we eagerly expect God to move. And so, uh, and this is precisely what we find here today. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2. Uh, Jesus, he died on the cross. He rose from the dead. That's what we celebrated at Easter. Jesus then, while he rose from the dead, he met his disciples again. He met 500 different people, and he gave them a mission. He gave them a mission to go into the world and make followers of Christ. Make it locally. Make it in your neighborhood. Make it in the neighborhood you wouldn't go into, and make it all throughout the world. And that's very important. That is why we exist. We exist as a church uh, to make God known. We, we exist as a church to grow together in Jesus Christ, to experience him afresh. That is, if you pull everything back from the church, that needs to be our nucleus, all right? And, and, and we miss that because we make the church about something else, and they may be good things, but not the main thing. Uh, now, what's interesting is before Jesus said go, and, and, and before he let them loose on the mission he told them to do, he said, you need to wait, you need to wait for the coming of the Spirit of God to come upon you, the Holy Spirit. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. That is the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that rose Jesus Christ from the dead. He comes to reside in you. But they had not received it yet. This was a promise yet to be given to them. And so we see in Acts 2.1, we see the setting of this day. It's getting ready to come. That suddenly is ready to happen. We see that they are meeting and they're gathering and it's about to happen. Now, I don't know about you, but suddenly comes quickly. You can prepare for suddenly. Maybe you're getting a job and, and you're waiting for that call back and, and then suddenly that call comes. You don't know when it's gonna come. And in that meeting, in that waiting time, you just, you have that anxiety or the anxiousness of, of that call. Or, or maybe uh, suddenly has come to you uh, if you're in the military and, and there's a war and you're being called up to war. Or, or maybe that suddenly was is that, you know, you're on the verge of engagement and you think, uh, you think that the guy is going to ask very soon, but you are, if you know, I'm talking to you ladies here, like, and you're just, I don't know when it's going to be, but when it suddenly happens, it's like, oh, and you'll go on Facebook, you do the little ring things, everybody sees your ring, you know, all that thing. And so it's like, but you don't know when the suddenly is going to happen. And maybe, maybe you have a health issue and you have a test and you don't know when the test is, the results are going to come back, but suddenly the doctor calls. Suddenly never sends a text message and tells you exactly when it's coming or else it wouldn't be suddenly, right? And so suddenly comes upon all of us. And we're seeing the suddenly is about to happen to the 120 people, the first church, as they're waiting for the power of, this, of the Holy Spirit to pour out on them. And here's the thing. Here's the main principle for this morning. It's his promise, and he promised the church this. His promise prepares you for his suddenly. His promise prepares you for the suddenly, whether it's a sudden event in your life or whether it's, it, it's, a, it's a God thing in your life or it's a test result or job, whatever. His promises, we are children of God. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that, that you don't have to be held back or be a hostage to the suddenly, you're prepared for that suddenly when it comes. You know, God wants us to trust him in the suddenly. He's not a casual, he's not an uninterested, or he's not an, a, a distant God. He's a God that you can know personally. He's a God that he wants you to know him personally, and not just know about him, but actually know him, know his kindness, know that he wants to demonstrate his sovereignty, that is his all control and his might in your life. And when his spirit arrives, and we're going to see in the Bible today, when his spirit arrives, we receive his presence that is all-consuming. When God shows up, when the spirit shows up, he will consume you. If you let him, he will consume you. Let's take a look at Acts chapter 2. Acts is Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. So Acts chapter 2, verse 1. 
It starts off with this. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Now, before I go any further in here, you're in for a treat, all right? We are approaching some of the most controversial. Listen, we only make them controversial. They're not controversial to God. We only make them controversial. But the thing is, we are approaching some of the most controversial texts in Scripture. A lot of a lot of times when I sit under uh, under a, a pastor or whatever that preaches this, they actually skip this part. And I was like, oh, come on, why are you skipping that? I get it, because when I started studying this, I'm like, oh, this is... This is going to cause some controversy, all right? So, and the thing is, you're in for a treat today. Are you, should, I, should I go for this or should I skip it? All right, let's go for it. Here we go. So, the, yeah, the big day has arrived, and in God's sovereign knowledge, he was pouring out his spirit on a very strategic day. This strategic day we see here on the day of Pentecost, this is a Jewish holiday. This is a holiday that, uh, that many Jewish people from all around the world that, would, that dispersed away from Jerusalem would come into Jerusalem to celebrate the 50th day after Passover, which was the day that, uh, that traditionally that Moses gave the law, and they'd have a, just a giant old feast, all right? And so they would come from all over to do this. This was a grand holiday, and God was going to strategically pour out his spirit when a, the, most of the Jewish world was going to be present. I think that's a pretty good idea. We see here the, the number of the nations, and I'm only going to read to you this section of Scripture once because I know I'm going to mess some of these nations up, and they're not nations anymore, so that's why I don't know how to pronounce them anymore, but I'm going to do my best. All right, so verse 9 through 11, here are the nations that were present. We had the Parthians, we had the Medes, we had the Elamites, we had the residents of Mesopotamia, we had Judea, we had Cappadocia, we had Pontus, we had Asia, we had uh, Phrygia, we had uh, Pamphy uh, Pamphylia, we had Egypt, we had parts of Libya, among Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, and Arabians. How'd I do, right? So here's the thing. Here's the nations that they're really from. Iran, modern day. Iran, Turkey, North Africa, uh, Crete, Rome, Arabia, Egypt, Syria, and really all parts of the Middle East. You can see there on the map on the screen. They were all coming to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost, and strategically, and, and God knows all things because he's God, he is going to unleash the Holy Spirit when the Jewish world was going to hear and see the demonstration of God's ministry of the message of Jesus Christ. So we see here in verse 2, and everybody say it together, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Even though the believers were waiting for this promise, they did not know when the suddenly was gonna happen. They were waiting days on end. Jesus says, don't go anywhere until the Holy Spirit uh, occurs. Now, can you imagine 120 people in this room? I know after day two, people be like, okay, come on. Like, really? What's... You know, like people were probably getting a little, little, you know, testy a little bit, but, but the Bible says they prayed, and that's good. When you get kind of grumbly, you need to go in prayer to have God just give you the right perspective of what's going on. They're praying, they're waiting days, and then suddenly the Holy Spirit comes. And you'll notice that when the Spirit comes, he doesn't come in a whimper. He doesn't come in a, a just a nice, gentle whisper, Holy Spirit. You know, it's, it's not like that. It's very disrupting. In fact, we see here the spirit is described as a mighty rushing wind and on over the heads of the church were tongues of fire. What? Now, that's a really interesting picture, I, I think. But I want to be honest with you. This isn't just a, a you know, metaphorical picture of what the Holy Spirit is. This actually happened. 
They're, they're, this is a narrative. They're telling you what actually happened. This room when the Holy Spirit came, a mighty rushing wind came, and tongues of fire was over their heads. Now, I just want to pause here. What happens when you have a mighty rushing wind and fire? What happens to that fire? It goes nuts. It goes out of control, right? And so I'm going to give you a little story of my stupidity. I know you guys like this. But I had a burn pit. I've thrown it away after this uh, instance because I got so scared. But I had a burn pit in my backyard. And one day on a nice, calm, gentle day, blue skies, I decided I'm going to make a nice fire in my backyard. And so I decided that I was going to put my old Christmas wreath uh, in the... uh, (laughs) <laughs> and yeah, you know, right? <laughs> my old Christmas wreath uh, in my burn pit, and I'm just going to watch it gently burn because there was no wind or whatever. So I light the Christmas wreath that's going. I'm sitting back there. I'm like, oh, this fire is so cool. It's so fast, whatever. But out of nowhere, and I kid you not, there was no wind until I lit that Christmas wreath because God was going to teach me a lesson. But I, I lit this Christmas wreath, and a 35-mile-an-hour sustained wind gusted in my backyard. I'm sure it was all over Kenosha, but it's definitely my backyard. And it lit that it lit that wreath up so bad it engulfed the entire burn pit and it began to grow to where it started catching my big tall tree on fire. My neighbors started getting scared saying, do I need to call the fire department? And I realized that if I don't do something to try to put this fire out, it's going to burn my house down. And so, of course, I ran into uh, my, uh, I ran over to the house. I have a habit of always locking my side door, even when I'm home. And so I locked my side door because I was going to yell for Allison to get me the extinguisher. The door was locked. She was somewhere. I'm pounding on the door. Honey, honey, open up, open up, open up. She she opens up the door, kind of gives me that look. I'm like, (laughs) and she just looks at me. I'm like, fire, fire. She goes to the fire and she just looks at me like, Andy, you're an idiot. And so... And she goes to the basement, gives me this honking old uh, fire extinguisher, and I extinguish that fire out. And so much smoke uh, came from that fire that engulfed our whole house. The wind took it down the street. And literally, you could see as that smoke cloud went down the street, neighbors just opened up all their doors. Boop, 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 boop. They're all looking like, what is going on here? Is their house on fire? It's like, no, just a grill out. <laughs> That's what happens when you have a mighty rushing wind and a fire. You can't mistake in it. It's amazing what a large gust of wind will do to fire. But what we're seeing described in Acts 2, the characteristics of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit wants to set us ablaze. And I don't know if you've seen a fire at night, but he wants to illuminate us to where people can unmistakably say, God is at work. God is at work. When God is present, the first thing he does is he pushes us to praise. When we know God is present, we're like, God, I got a lot of work for you I need to do. No, 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 no. He pushes us to praise. And we'll see that in our text this morning. It fills us with power and it illuminates the gospel of Jesus so that we make much of God. We're not like, oh, I just want to have this experience with God so I can have this experience with God. And wrong. God wants us to be filled with his power so that others know Jesus, period. Now, I'm not saying it can't be exciting. It just that, that, That's not the end goal. His promise prepares you for the suddenly. And when he suddenly comes, the second point is, His presence makes you praise. Verse four, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Here it is, the promise is being fulfilled. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. The instance of the believers here receiving the Spirit is what we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, this, is, this feeling is in the indicative mood uh, in the Greek, and I'll, I'll, what this means to all of us that don't know Greek, that's fine. I'm just saying this to say that this is something that happens to you. 
So this baptism of the Spirit is something that happens to you. It's not something that we ask for, uh, what we see from how the original construct of the language, it happens to you. They waited, he came. Now for us today, I would say that, um, that, that today when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. You receive the Holy Spirit. In fact, we see this, it's very clear. Ephesians 8, 9 says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. That's very clear. So when you place your faith in Christ, you don't be like, do I have the Holy Spirit or not? Do I have the Holy Spirit? Yes, you do. You have the Holy Spirit. We call that the baptism of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives, is given to all believers in the New Testament church. Ephesians 1.13, we see the progression of salvation. We see in him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you were sealed and promised with the Holy Spirit. And we see here that when you heard the truth, you are able to respond to that truth. You're able to believe in him. And when you believe in him, you are sealed with that promise of the Holy Spirit. But here's the thing. I don't even be like, oh, great, Holy Spirit, got him. Go on the next thing. Here's the thing. If you place your faith in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit, but that doesn't mean the Spirit has you. That makes sense? That doesn't mean the Spirit has you. Although everyone who places their faith in Christ gets the Spirit, we must still seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Big difference there. To be filled with the Holy Spirit means we allow God to have our entire lives and the power of his spirit. We see this in Ephesians 5.18, a command in Ephesians 5.18. He says, do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. This filling in the original language is very different. It's not something that happens to you. It's actually a command that you need to pursue. You need to pursue this filling. How often? It's a continuous action all the time. So you need to daily ask God, God, I need to be full of your spirit. Holy Spirit, I need, in this area, I need the fullness of your spirit right now. God, as I speak this morning, I need you to fill me with your spirit. God, as I go through this day in my job, I need you to fill me, fill me with your spirit. God, as I, as I encounter this hard conversation, may it not be my words that I say, but God, I pray that you'd fill me with your spirit, that you would be present in this conversation. This is a daily request and something that we need to seek in our everyday lives to be spirit-filled because we all know what it's like not to be spirit-filled, right? We all know what it means to just do, walk in our own flesh or walk in our, by our own power and do what we think is right. And we know like, whoa, I don't think that's what God wants. That's the opposite of being filled with the Spirit. So baptism in the Spirit occurs once at conversion. Feeling occurs throughout your life. To put it another way, at the baptism of the Spirit, you get the Spirit. But at the feeling of the Spirit, the Spirit gets you. There is, this is where we differ in terminology with the traditional Pentecostals, uh, where they would say that baptism in the Spirit is a second experience that you need to seek after your conversion. Uh, I, I think we can all agree upon this. We all need to seek the Holy Spirit, and we all need to seek that He controls our life. Now, someone has said once, well, perhaps we're just playing a game of semantics. Feeling the Spirit, baptism in the Spirit. You know, perhaps we are playing a game of semantics, but we should strive to be accurate in our semantics of what we see here uh, in the Bible. Verse 4, we see the church was baptized and filled together, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Verse 5, let's pick up there. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound of the multitude, they heard the rushing wind. The sound of the multitude uh, came came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not those who are speaking Galileans? Now, what they mean by this is the Galileans, they weren't known to be educated. Like, these guys have never been to school, and they're speaking fluently in my language. Like, what's up with that? What's up with that? 
Verse 11, we hear the nature of what they were speaking, the disciples, when they started speaking in tongues. They, we hear in verse 11, we hear them telling in our own languages the mighty works of God. And so we see here that uh, what they are speaking, they're not speaking the gospel yet. They are praising Jesus uh, in uh, different languages that other people from, that understand those languages are hearing. Does that make sense? And so we see here in Acts 2.12 uh, their response. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Like they heard the big like boom. You know, like we heard a big explosion. Uh, there was a big explosion here in Kenosha years ago. A house blew up, I think by 22nd, and all of us felt it. Like, I got in my car and looked for it, you know? <laughs> so did all of Kenosha. It's like, I, at first I thought my house blew up. Like, you're like, what was that? That's what this was like. People are like, what just happened? And then they get to the, to the epicenter, and they're like, what are these Galileans doing? What does this mean? But verse 13, others mocked and said, there is filled with new wine. As typical in the church today, when Jesus is presented, some accept the claims, others reject it. Some even mock it. In this case, we saw the spontaneous worship uh, in the first church, and they were regarding this spontaneous worship as them being drunk. But Peter responds to this quite quickly, verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk. Well, that's good. Since it's only the third hour of the morning, I think he, he said a little joke here. He said, hey, by the way, um, thanks for calling them drunk. It's only nine in the morning. What are they, raging alcoholics? I mean, no, these people are not experiencing uh, the, the, the euphoria of, uh, of, of being drunk. They're experiencing the euphoria of the Holy Spirit. Go back to Ephesians chapter five. It says, do not be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, you can drink wine that leads to debauchery, but you can never have enough of the Holy Spirit. Be filled, be filled, be filled, be filled, repeat, repeat, repeat. You can never have too much of God. You can never have too much of the Holy Spirit in your life. We leak the Holy Spirit. We need more of the Holy Spirit. Peter basically says, uh, you know, there's something else happening. And in the next week, we're going to take a look. He then preaches the first sermon in the church where the Holy Spirit goes boom and people respond like crazy, like crazy. So we need to pause here for, for a moment. So we've gone through the narrative this morning. But as we go through uh, the next uh, eight chapters or so of Acts, the question that's going to keep on coming up, I believe, is this, is that we are seeing God move in these miraculous ways in Acts I want to know why we don't see that all the time today. Have you ever thought that? Like you're reading the Bible, I'm like, man, God, is, he, was, he was so cool. Well, what do you mean was? I mean, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, it says in Hebrews. So what are we to make of this narrative? Remember, I said a couple weeks ago that this is a narrative and we need to pull out the application. Uh, so basically, let me just put it this way. Does he do all this stuff today? Are miracles for today... You know, there's been a lot of reason to avoid this chapter. The reason why it's been so controversial is you can flip on certain Christian stations and you can watch the WWE version of preaching. And the WWE or UFC version of preaching are guys that come up there and they wear their white suits and they, and they, go and they have arenas and, 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 they, and, they, and they make a spectacle out of it. And that's turned a lot of people off. 
And, and you've even seen scandals where people have, uh, they, they speak about the Holy Spirit and they do miracles and then you find out they've been robbing money and scandals and all that. And I just want to say this is that I, 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 I affirm that, that that is grieving, but we should not take the excesses or even the counterfeits and throw out what is real about the Holy Spirit. And the only way that we can find out what's real about the Holy Spirit, we take God at his word. And so our word, the word of God needs to inform our experience so we know what to make of the experience because if we take bad experience as informing us of what our experience should be bad experience will rob you what is good that god wants to give you does that make sense so our miracles for today some in this room today would answer no they're not they're gone and that theological viewpoint is called cessationism others in this room today you'd say yes they are for today and you would be called continuous because you believe that uh, you believe that the, the holy spirit and his gifts today are for today others they don't know I just want to say that I believe that this is a minor issue. The major issue is the gospel of Jesus Christ, a number of, uh, a number of doctrines that we would consider major. What you believe about the gifts of the Spirit, I would believe, are minor. And when we take a minor issue and we make it a major issue, we're outside the box. Here's the box. If you don't think they're for today, guess what? We love you. That, yep, that you're, that's valid. I, I think we can learn from each other. Number two is don't know. Uh, you're, in, uh, you're, tr you're trying to figure out. The next one is continuous. You believe they're for today. Where am I at? I'll let you know in just a second, all right? But notice what's outside the box. We have hyper-cessationists. These are people that are gonna feel real, real uncomfortable here. They're gonna wanna convince everybody that the gifts aren't for today, but you are gonna try to convert everybody to believe that the spirit doesn't uh, work today and you're gonna, you're gonna call all the stories that you hear just demonic or this or that. And, and so you have no tolerance for somebody who believes that the gifts are for today. You're gonna find yourself outside the box. Uh, you're also going to find yourself out of the box if you're a hyper-continuist, if you believe that everybody should do, be doing this thing all at, the one, all at the same time or whatever. And so if you're, if you're in either one of those uh, outside the box, you're going to feel uncomfortable here. I'm just being honest. Before we go further, we need to define what a miracle is. What a miracle is, this is by Wayne Grudem. Um, if, if there's two books after the Bible that I find important, uh, in the studies of God, it's uh, ev New Evidence that Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. And the second one would be uh, Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. Um, that, is, that is a very important book that has uh, uh, been a huge help for me. It says this, uh, Wayne Grudem says this, A miracle is a less common kind of activity in which he increases the awe and wonder and bears witness to Jesus. That's the main point right there, to bear witness to Jesus. Hebrews 2.4 says this, While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit, he distributed according to his will. So I can't conjure God and say, God, Andy to God, Andy to God, yes, I would really like the gift of healing right now, and I'd really like the gift of exhortation, and I need the gift of administration pronto, right now, God, over and out. It doesn't work that way. It's not according to my will, it's according to his will because God, through his people, how he chooses to gift makes a beautiful thing and it's called the church. It's called the body of Christ. God is the originator of a miracle and he works his supernatural that is according to his will. When we pray for miracles, we cannot twist the arm or say uh, through a canned prayer or a certain formula uh, that uh, we can't twist God's arm to, to move. We believe he will move, but we understand and we trust him when he doesn't move in a specific situation, knowing that what he's doing is better than what we, what we can ever think. We cannot manipulate God. Rather, we are at his mercy, and he demonstrates his kindness, his grace, his supernatural love, his sovereignty. Now, my personal journey. You're like, okay, Andy, you said you're going to say where you're at. My personal journey. My personal journey with this issue, um, I began a cessationist, 
I began a cessationist. It's an interesting story. For the, you know, um, I, believe, I believed that God through his Holy Spirit, the miracles stopped at one point. And so I was, I was kind of in the mold of that teaching until I went to Trinity. And I was shaped by individuals like D.A. Carson, John Piper, Wayne Grudem, amongst others. By the way, D.A. Carson is probably, I believe, one of the greatest Greek theologians alive on the planet Earth right now when it comes to biblical Greek. But back to where I was. I believed that the Holy Spirit faded somewhere at the completion of the Bible around 100 AD. Uh, I held this view until I became a student of New Testament Greek uh, at Trinity just down the road in Deerfield. And it was at this time I was translating the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, many of you might know 1 Corinthians chapter 13, even if you're outside the church world, because a lot of people read this at weddings. It's love is patient, love is kind. Come on, you know it, right? How many of you had that at your wedding? Right? Anybody? Okay. We, okay. No. Okay. Maybe nobody. Okay. I, I stand corrected. It's fallen out of use. Okay. So anyway, it's most weddings I do. Okay. So anyway, here's here's the here's the point. In the church of Corinth, Paul was writing a letter because his church was known for their excessive use of spiritual gifts. Uh, they didn't lack in spiritual gifts. In fact, what they lacked in was love. Uh, and so they 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 would they would lift out through all these giftings, um, but. But yet they didn't love each other. In fact, there was sin going on all over this church. You'd go in this church and they'd be so, that's the height of self-righteousness. By the way, if God chooses you to use you in a way that I would consider miraculous, that does not mean you're super spiritual. It just means God's using you. Does that make sense? And we need to be humble and thankful in those moments. Um, But anyway, so he's writing to the church of Corinth and he's telling them, hey, you need to love. Paul asked the church of Corinth not not to throw out the gifts because there were abuses and there were abuses going on. But because there were abuses, he wanted to show them what mattered the most, and that is the superiority of love. Love will last forever, and anything and everything we do, including the activity of the Holy Spirit, will always point to Jesus and the love of Christ. So if you know a bunch of Bible stuff and you don't do it in the love of Christ, you're wrong. In stating that, that, that Paul states this in 1 Corinthians 13, that love will last forever. On the flip side, the gifts of the Spirit, which they loved and they excelled in, will not last forever. Let's take a look at this. This is what I translated, in first, not, not now, but when I, was in, when I was at Trinity, 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 13. It says this, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I grew up in childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now, um, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. As I was translating this passage, I noticed what happened to prophecies. They'll pass away. I noticed what will happen to tongues, that is, speaking a language you don't know uh, supernaturally. Um, they will cease. The supernatural knowledge, when God gives you information, and uh, that will cease. That will pass away. These actions in the original language, I don't bring up Greek too much because it's Greek to us, but it's important in this conversation. The actions in the original Greek point that these, this, this cessation that's going to happen is at a future point of when Paul was writing this to the Corinthians. So it's in a future point. And when it does happen, it will cease forever. It will be a completed action. So the question is, when will it happen? Verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. First, the meaning of verse 12 
to require that verse 10 is talking about the time of the Lord's return. Verse 12 says this, for we know we see in the mirror dimly, but then, that's the perfect, when the perfect comes, face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. That word then in the verse 12 refers to the time of when the perfect comes in verse 10. And when the perfect comes, we will see face to face. And this is huge. That word face-to-face in the Old Testament is like when Moses saw God face-to-face. In Revelation 22.4, this is the future, uh, when, when Jesus Christ comes back, and he's coming back. When Jesus Christ comes back, he will get away. Of, he, we will no longer have experienced death, pain, sorrow. Tears will be no more. It will all be swallowed up because all things will be made new. And in Revelation 22.4, we will then be seeing him face-to-face. This term is reserved when we see God. How I used to interpret it was the completion of the scriptures. But that, that, that seems a little bit much of the situation. With the completed scriptures today, do I, do I see God face to face? No, I don't see God face to face. Do I experience him? Yes, I do. Do I fully know him? No, I don't. I think the very, the, the very fact that we have to even preach on this this morning shows that we don't fully know. Verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. For I know in part, but then I shall know fully. When, we, we, when shall we know even as we have been known? God knows us. He knows everything about us. When shall we know as God knows us? Heaven. The second coming. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Pastor Dave, is one of his favorite theologians. He says this, if it means that you and I who have the scriptures open before us, he's basically saying this before I read the quote. He's saying in response to those who say that the perfect is when the scripture ends instead of when Christ comes. Because if you make the argument the perfect is scripture, then you can say the gift ceased. Martin Martin Lloyd-Jones responds to this. He says, if it means that you or I who have the scriptures open before us no much more than the Apostle Paul and God's truth. It means that we're altogether superior even to the apostles themselves, including the Apostle Paul. Indeed, there's only one word to describe such a view. It's nonsense. That's pretty strong. Again, if you, if you do view that, I consider you in the box. So I wouldn't be that as strong as Martin Lloyd-Jones. But it is a big stretch to say that we fully know him as he knows us. It's a big stretch to say that we see him now face to face. We can see him veiled. We know him in a veiled way. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. And he's referring to specifically here knowledge, tongues, and prophecies, and really all the other gifts for that matter. John Calvin says this. He's responding to people that say it's not the coming of of Jesus. Uh, It is wrong of people to make this whole discussion apply to the intervening of time. I had to make a decision when I was studying New Testament Greek. I'm either going to hold what I was passed down to me. I was either going to hold what I believed was true because I had good constructed arguments, had good theological constructed arguments, or I had to look at the Word of God and say, I'm going to be obedient to what I see in the New Testament Greek, in the Bible. What do I do? And I know what, for, for a couple days there, I, I really wrestled with it because I had, a, I had to swallow a lot of pride. I argued with a lot of people that said the gifts were ceased, and now I'm seeing in God's Word that I'm wrong. D.A. Carson says this, The first is obvious. There does not appear to be a biblical warrant, at least from this chapter, from banning of the gifts on the grounds that Scripture anticipates an early demise. This does not mean, of course, that everything that passes for prophecy or the gift of tongues is genuine. So to make clear, uh, I believe the Holy Spirit can and do anything through us. Let's just make this simple, because like, where am I going with this? I believe that God can and will do anything he wants to do, period. And the thing is, someone can say, well, Andy, you know, what's going to happen? What happens if someone stands up in our service and they just disrupt it? I'll tell them to quit disrupting us because there's order. Whatever we feel like God is leading us to do, it needs to line up with the word of God, right? 
In fact, we're told this very specifically. 1 John 4, 1, it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone into the world. Again, that doesn't mean that if there's false prophets, we throw out what God is doing. It just means we need to test everything to say, God, are you really doing this? I want the Spirit of God to do what he wants to do in order, and we don't need to be afraid of it. Listen, this is what Jonathan Edwards said. Jonathan Edwards, the Puritan. Because sometimes we're so scared of the Spirit, we throw him out because we're afraid of disorder, we're afraid someone's going to do something wrong. That is why the leadership of the church needs a shepherd through the Word of God when things are happening. And when things are wrong, we call it out as wrong. But this is what Jonathan Edwards says, great Puritan theologian. Things were happening in his meetings, just just crazy phenomena were happening in his meetings, and people were starting to say, why don't you just shut this down? He says this, if God pleases to convince the consciousness of persons so that they cannot avoid a great outward manifestation, even to interpret and breaking off those public meetings they were attending, I do not think this is an unhappy interruption. Any more than if a company should meet on the field to pray for rain and should be broken off from the exercise by a plentiful rainstorm. Let me say that last part any more than if a company should meet on the field to pray for rain and should be broken off and they're exercised by a plentiful rainstorm. Too often we're like, okay, we just got to, we're all control freaks in the West. Oh, yeah, we just got to control this. And, you know, and we've been, by the way, we've been influenced by humanism and secularism, haven't we? And so we have here Edward saying, sometimes God interrupts our order to bring his order. He's not going to bring disorder. And if there's disorder, that needs to be shepherded. There's, there's, there's very clear scripture about that. Listen, let me just put, say it another way. We are not Pentecostal, but we believe in Pentecost. Does that make sense? We are not Pentecostal, but we believe in Pentecost, that we are followers of Jesus Christ. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, you're followers of Jesus Christ. What I see in this room are people that are trying to figure out who Jesus is to them. I see people that maybe even, you, you have, I don't know if this to be true, but I hope this is true. I hope every week we have people in here that are atheists. They're like, you know what, I'm going to give it a chance. And I want God, I, this, is, this, is, this is my preaching style, is that I want us to be deep in the word. I want it to be deeply applicational, but I want us to have space that where I don't have my messages all worked out. I'm like, okay, this is all what God's going to say. When he needs to show up, he can interrupt this whenever he wants. Listen, here's the thing. Remember the box? Remember I said, if you are a cessationist or you're a continuous, and by the way, I, I, am, a, I am a continuous with a seatbelt on, okay? That's what I say. I'm a continuous with a seatbelt on. All right, let's go for the ride. Hang on. You know? <laughs> And the reason why is that is because I believe that the excesses on other ends are damaging. If you're a cemetery and you call the things of the Lord satanic, you're calling the Lord, that's like when they called Jesus Beelzebul in the Gospels, when they said the works of Jesus are of the enemy. That doesn't do any help, and some of it could be. And listen, if you want to know if something's a work of God, whether it's miraculous or whether it's teaching or whatever a church is doing, look at that fruit down the line. If it's not fruitful, it wasn't of God, plain and simple. I think we can all agree that God can and will do anything he wants to do, whether we give him permission or not. Well, when we impact God's word, we don't want to just be somebody who knows the word. We want to know the person of Jesus Christ. And you can't know Jesus just by knowing things about him. You need to know him personally. Do you have a relationship with Almighty God. Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? You see, he created you to have a relationship with him. Did you know that? He, you were wonderfully and fearfully made in your mother's womb. You were created to know God. The problem is 
we've sinned. We've done something wrong in our past, in our present, and undoubtedly in our future. And that sin separates us from Almighty God. You see, God requires perfection in heaven. And not one of us, including you, including myself, we're not perfect. And so sin separates us from Almighty God. And what people try to do is they try to get to God by religion. They try to get to God by doing good works or to prove themselves. But none of these things will get us to God. In fact, our righteousness is but filthy rags, is what Scripture says. And so it requires a miraculous, uh, a, a miraculous happening. And that miraculous happening is this. It's not ourselves. It's what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. You see, God came 2,000 years ago as the God-man, Jesus Christ, to stand in our place to take the punishment of our sin, to take on God's wrath. Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins. He stood in your place and God saw your sin upon Christ. And Jesus died on the cross. The wrath of God came upon Christ. And on the cross, he said, it is finished. Jesus Christ died for you. But because he's a perfect, sinless sacrifice, he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And his resurrection demands now our response. And the question is this, have you placed your full faith in Jesus Christ? Upon Jesus Christ, what he did for you. The Bible says this, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that Christ was risen from the dead, you will be saved. All those who cry out in the name of the Lord will be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, that means die spiritually, but have everlasting life. Have you personally placed your faith and trust in Jesus? If you're not sure or you know you haven't, Right now is the time. You might think like, well, let me get things figured out first. No, let's, today is the day of your salvation, Scripture says. That means that you come as you are, but Christ doesn't leave you as you are. He takes you where he is going. So why don't you just pray with me right now? Why, why don't you consider Jesus? Why don't you place your faith and trust in Jesus right now? Uh, this prayer that I'm about to pray isn't going to save you. It's Christ who's already saved you. I'm just helping you communicate to God. So if you want to place your faith and trust with Jesus right now, will you just pray along with me? Just say, Lord Jesus, I realize I've sinned. And I realize I need a Savior. So Lord Jesus, will, will you save me? I place my full faith and trust upon you. Thank you for dying on the cross, saving me from my sins. Thank you for raising from the dead. Help me follow you now. I trust you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus right now, the Bible says you have become a son or daughter of the King. You have been forgiven of your sins. And know this, that once you are held in the grip of God, Nothing can pluck you from his hand. Also know this, when you place your faith and trust in Jesus, there's a party in heaven happening right now. Uh, when just one person gives their life to Jesus, the angels rejoice in heaven. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode. If you would like to know more about Kenosha City Church, then check us out online at kenosha.church or on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Kenosha City Church. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to follow us so that you never have to miss an episode. At Kenosha City Church, we are not perfect people, but real people being made new through Jesus.